Just as a brief reminder, in the first four verses, we try to talk some about why that all of those people, those Jews, were there on Pentecost. Or excuse, yeah, excuse me, at Pentecost. What exactly Pentecost means, which is 50 days. So we had the Passover, and then 50 days later. Now, something that I'm going to bring up a little later tonight is, if you remember, the Passover is the beginning of the Jewish calendar, and that was restarted. We talked about last time from Moses. So. Moses is in Egypt with all the children of Israel. They've gone through nine plagues. The tenth plague, God says, this is going to be so significant, we're going to restart the whole calendar on this day. Now, seven weeks later, roughly, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. Now, that's seven weeks is 49 days. 50 days, right? So... He's going up to Mount Sinai to get the law. There's thunder and lightnings. There's fire. The people are terrified. They're asking what's going on. He gives them a law. He comes back. There's glory. There's the old covenant that's given to them. Now, there's. I'm not going to get heavily into this, but now we're 50 days from Passover, the celebration of Passover, but it's the real Passover what the Passover was symbolizing all along, and that is the coming of the Messiah to give his life. So the Lamb of God, which took away the sins of the world, gave his life. Fifty days later now, as Moses ascended to the mount, Jesus ascends into heaven. You're seeing the connections here. As Moses got the word of the Lord was delivered and he came down with the law, so the Holy Spirit descends down in the new covenant age. So I'm not going to get into all the comparisons that can be made, but there certainly is a lot of similarities between Moses going up to the mount some 50 days later, and that's approximate, and then some things that happen at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming and so forth. So maybe next week, take some time to look at that. I want to look at that myself a little bit more before we start making any of those comparisons. But consider if you see some unique similarities there um and so after that there's cloven tongues like fire we try to describe what that looked like right that there was something appearance as a tongue resting on the people like fire it hovered over them they began to speak and i think when we left off last week or two weeks ago we were talking about um let me see here whether they were speaking one, Peter was speaking one language and they were all hearing it in their original or whether they were each individually speaking, which we know was happening because that's what's going to be pointed out here in a minute. And those various people were understanding. I think the general conclusion was both were going on, that the apostles and some of those present at that day were singularly speaking a different language. So if I'm speaking Spanish and somebody else is speaking French and somebody else is speaking Portuguese and all those different languages, so that's going on, which would make some sense because if you think about human nature and what would seem to be pretty common here, and I think we mentioned this before, likely people who spoke the same language congregated in similar areas. And that's a pretty natural conclusion to come. So it makes sense if you're an apostle and you're up speaking that you're going to a group of people that are from Egypt and you're speaking an Egyptian language and you're telling them 
And the primary message we'll get into in a moment, but it's about Christ being the Messiah. That's at the heart of what they're telling them. But then we see that Peter, and and this is where we'll get into, I'll just go ahead and start reading. It's verse 5, so this is page number 2 if you're just using the outline. The bottom of the page, verses 5 through 13. It says this, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongues wherein we were born, Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia and Egypt, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. So, again, without trying to be redundant, because I don't remember fully what we talked about. So if you'll turn to page 3. Uh, we showed you before, there's 14 languages that we have listed here that were listed beforehand. If you turn to page 4, so another page, you can see where all those languages come from. And this is a very diverse group coming from all these places. And this, this map is going to be kind of central to some of the things that we talk about tonight. But all these men, and we said this last time, they're coming in and they are some of which have likely been here 50 days earlier because we're assuming, this is not biblical, this is an assumption, but it seems like a safe one, that the people who came for Pentecost are very similar to the ones that came to Passover. If you're that devout, you're likely going to have a little bit of money, possibly, and you're very devout. And so you're coming in. We have a pilgrimage that takes place like that in modern day amongst Muslims. Right? That they go to Mecca every year and Medina, and they take this journey. And usually most Muslims try to do it once in their lifetime, where they go and they take this journey. But the most devout ones, every year, from wherever they come, they're flying to those places, and they're taking those journeys. So, but generally speaking, we have three groups of men. We mentioned that. Um, And so here's one question I want to ask, and this is the second bullet point to kind of get our discussion started tonight. After these miraculous things are going on, There's two groups with emerge with an attitude about what they're seeing. So they can see all of these men are distinctly Galileans. Now, if we want to put this in a visual perspective, imagine all Caucasian white men from America being at the the United Nations, which meets in, what is it, New York every year? And there's all this diverse population... And the translators that are all from the same place are speaking perfectly in all these other languages. And the people recognize this is miraculous what is happening. Something is, this is not normal what's taking place here. And as a result of this miracle, and yet notice what they, they focus on is this miracle, but then they're also talking about what the men are talking about. The wonderful works of God. They're honing in on the message and they're connecting these two things. Okay, 
they're talking about the wonderful words of God, but how are they speaking this language when they're from that background? And they're wondering, what does this miracle mean? And so one group of them speaks up and says that. They just ask in verse 12, what does this mean? Another group, it tells us, begins to mock. These men are full of new wine. So these men are drunk, what they're saying. So a similar parallel that I think we can make to today that I want to put in the form of a question is, have you ever been in a service here or at a church and you begin to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit significantly. People are seeking the Lord. The gospel is being presented very powerfully, both preaching and in testimony. And there are people who have never been there before present. And I'm always very intrigued as to how people respond. Uh, Especially if, like these people they have a conception of religion already. Most people in America that come to church have some sort of rooting, at least from childhood, in religion of some some sort. Especially in this Bible Belt area, most people have some kind of conception of what religion is like. And yet I would contend that probably many of them have never been amongst a collective group of people where the Holy Spirit was manifesting in a significant way. And that's, I want to I disclaim that comment with the fact that do I believe that the Holy Spirit can manifest Himself in a Catholic church? Yes, I do. In a non-denominational church, in a Pentecostal church, every type of church under the sun, do I think so? Yes, I do. Not because any of us are worthy of it, not because doctrinal soundness warrants God's presence. Like we can't think, well, since we teach what is right, that means we deserve this. No. Right? God's presence is always of his mercy and grace. It is worth saying at the same time, God says in John 4, He is seeking people to worship Him, which worship in spirit and in truth. So it's an easy conclusion to come to that when the truth is present somewhere, God is going to fellowship that place more likely than when falsehood is present. Right? And so it shouldn't surprise us that God's Holy Spirit manifests Himself amongst sound people more frequently that doesn't discount the possibility that he can he can show himself anywhere so yet in saying that i've met people before who didn't grow up in a place that i think routinely taught the truth about salvation and other things they through god's grace and through the presentation of the gospel as imperfect as it might have been still got saved So they've had this experience with God where God's Holy Spirit was manifest to them alone or maybe with a friend or a family member. You know, they were all present. But often when people get in the presence of God's people where God is manifesting Himself collectively, it's different. 
It's just different. And I'm not even going to say that we have some... um, I don't want to say this. We have some um, right way of what that looks like. For example, when the Holy Spirit manifests himself in Africa, it looks different than it does here. People in Africa dance sometimes when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. And it's not fake at all. That's their culture. And I was witness one time in Ghana, a woman getting saved. She was down praying. And she, the moment, according to her testimony, that she got saved from the altar, she began to sing. And she was singing in twee, no idea what she was saying. And the people around her began to rejoice, very gently rejoice and hug one another and hug her. Somebody came over to me and began to explain to me what she was singing about. And she was singing about peace. She had peace. And one of the ways that it manifested in her, the Spirit's overflow, is that she just started singing. And she got up and she started dancing with that song. It was not elaborate. It was not even what I would call attention-seeking. It was just a cultural expression of what they do when they have joy and peace. I would be surprised if any of you dance when we have a spiritual service anytime soon. (laughs) Right? Because it's just not our custom and our culture for people to respond to the presence of the Holy Spirit that way. And I think that's a, a common thing that people have to sometimes adapt to is because one of the fundamental differences I would say in what we believe is we do want the Holy Spirit to I don't want people to testify to talk I want the Holy Spirit to prompt it and yet even in that um, statement I recognize that we're all going to make mistakes with that like how many times have you sat there and Something comes to your mind, and you're thinking, Lord, am I supposed to say something or not? And you get nervous, and you can't tell, is this nervous because the Holy Spirit's prompting me to say something, or am I just nervous I'm going to say something wrong? And I think churches tend to take on one of two extremes, either, and a lot of it's at the prompting of a pastor. A pastor who's always saying, no, say what's on your heart. Whatever's on your heart, say it, say it, say it. And then a church begins to, at times when they don't know what to do, lean towards the emotional expression, even when maybe it wasn't of the Lord. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. We're human. And that's one of the incredible things about God is that He doesn't expect us to get everything perfect. He knows. And one of the Psalms that has meant a lot to me lately is that He remembers that we are but dust. Aren't you thankful for that? Like here you are and you're at the end of a service and perhaps somebody comes to your mind that needs edified and encouraged. You know something about a situation. Maybe you don't. And you just feel like you need to say an encouraging word about something, but to you it makes no sense and you're nervous and you don't know what to say and you're about not to say something. And then all of a sudden you say something and you get done you feel like, man, that was just blabber. You know, I didn't say anything Welcome to preaching every Sunday morning here, right? That's, that's how I feel very often. But that's where there's a sense to which we have to rest in, Lord, I'm okay to speak. I'm okay not to speak. All I want is your will done. 
And after the fact, when I have spoken or I haven't spoken, not letting Satan pressure us so much that we're this grand failure that we didn't say something or that we said way too much, leave it in the hands of the Lord. Because you are imperfect. And if God specifically communicates to you, hey, that was a little bit too much. That was a view. Right? Um, that's okay. That's okay. It's okay that maybe, I mean, one of the big things preaching that I have to beware of is when you're up preaching and you're passionate and you're going and it's extemporaneous, so it's not planned. You know, I don't have every word written out. Sometimes what a preacher tends to do is unintentionally exaggerate by using words like all, every time. And that's the nature of extemporaneous speaking, is that you unintentionally, and I used to just crucify myself over that. Of, you know, you shouldn't have said this this way and that way. And, and then there was a party that said, hold on. Thank God that the Holy Spirit can mute the effects of certain things and bring to heart the things that need to be heard. And I've tended to be much less skeptical of others and putting pressure on myself for the recognition, Lord, I'll speak if you want, and if you don't want, that's okay. And if I don't know what to do, at that moment, I'm going to make the best discerning judgment that I can and live with it. And one thing that I've noticed in modern day is this tendency, this idealistic tendency of us towards ourselves and other people that we always have to discern the Spirit perfectly. And if we don't, then it's some catastrophe. Um, That's a dangerous slippery slope to go down because what you'll do is you'll never talk. You'll never serve the Lord, ever. You wait until everything's perfect. You will never serve the Lord. Um, and, and there's a lot that could be said within what I've just said in extreme directions either way. And so, um, and I, th- I want to encourage our church specifically, there are times where I have felt something needs to be said right now, but not by me. Like I talk all the time. And there are times when I need to be quiet and you all need to speak. And yet I can say, I don't know who, I don't even know what, but there's just a sense about me that's saying, this isn't finished. And so I want to I gently encourage you that if, if there is this continuum towards talking too much and not talking enough, I think we're falling a little bit to the not enough. That's my assessment. You may disagree with that, take that and pray on it, right? And I don't mean that in some harsh way. But there are times when, you know, when I think of my boys, they don't listen to me preach. I mean, I say that, that's an that's a exaggeration. But I preach here three times a week, daily at home. I'm preaching at them from their viewpoint. The phone calls I'm taking, I'm preaching at people on the phone. Right? I'm just always preaching. And so naturally, they tune out a lot. You don't preach to them ever, hardly. 
And so it has amazed me at times what my boys will say when you speak. And I've laughed to myself of like, well, yeah, but I, I preach that all around the clock. What do you mean? Like you've never heard that before, right? And uh, I, I get it. I get it. And it should be that way. But there are some people who your expression, your gentleness, some of the qualities that you have that are opposite of me is what other people will listen to and identify with and are modes of expression that make sense to them. And so I want to gently encourage you, especially if you're prone to shyness, um, your primary work in God's vineyard may not be talking, and that's okay. But that doesn't mean entirely you're not supposed to talk. That's a convenient way to hide behind the bush in the Garden of Eden, right? Is I'm shy and that's not my calling. Um, that doesn't mean God won't have you do it. And so take that and consider it um, because I just think it's an interesting thing. Now this example, these people begin to mock. Now that's pretty easy to do when we, you, know, you think I've heard testimonies of older men especially who say, you know, when I was a boy, me and the other boys would sit in the back of the church and we'd make fun. So what's going on here? There's a group of them that don't agree with what's going on. They begin to mock, say they're drunk. And we'll get to Peter's response to that here in just a minute. So let's look at the bottom of page three. There's two big picture parts that I want to hit. I want to try to be as quick with this as I can, but it may take us to the end to get there. So let's read the first big picture. It says this, a large portion of the Old Testament is dedicated to the captivities of Israel and Judah. These nations would rebel against God he would send prophets to warn them of impending judgment, and they would reject those prophets. As a result of their disobedience, God sent neighboring world powers to conquer and enslave them. A common practice of conquering nations was to take their captives to their own land to decrease the likelihood of rebellion. This became known as the Jewish diaspora, the dispersion of Jewish people from the homeland in Israel throughout the world. That's what part of that map is about, right? So we, we go back. And really, Isaiah is the first prophet where this is significant. And people are taken there into captivity. Israel is into Assyria, which is a neighboring nation. Assyria conquers this huge empire type. Some hundred and some years later, Babylon becomes a conquering nation. That's around the 700s, right? About 738, I think, is generally accepted or something like that for, for that. After that... We have in the book of Daniel that lasted for 70 years. Then we have the Persians that come in. And so we have this sequence of things where, and, and this is why this is important. When you read the Old Testament prophets, sometimes it seems really random and you don't know what are these nations and who are these people and where are they going and what is all this about? And it feels like when you read it in isolation, it's kind of nonsensical. Like cities that you can't even pronounce and kings of names you don't. I want you to know that this, what's happening here, is a result of those seemingly nonsensical things. Is that over the course of over a thousand years, or around a thousand years, the Jews are getting dispersed all throughout that part of the world. And they're staying there, and they're raising children there, and generations are established there. 
But in those pockets, the Jewish religion remains in many of those places. And you can think in your mind of the Mediterranean Sea. All around there and then some east and some south there in Africa. So, in one sense, God has retrospectively, in that time, this is just the amazing part of how mind-blowing that God is. So, God can take a sin of a people at a time, use a neighboring nation to judge them. Okay? For their sin specifically. Take those people, bring them into slavery, we'll say 700 miles east of there, like in Babylon. And in so doing, providentially setting the next generation up for his purpose for them in that location. Okay? Allowing 70 years to pass... And all those 70 years, God's providence is working and weaving through these situations. And then, God allows some of them to come back, some of them decide to stay, and all number of different options. And all of those choices, which men are making freely, God is orchestrating His providence and purpose for those people at that time but also setting up for his working hundreds of years later on this day. Like, think about that. Think about the complexity of God's plan in working a collective picture with nations involved and kings involved and militaries involved and also little babies involved and marriages involved Esther right like all these things are going on and yet let's zoom into just one part of the situation like imagine being those in Jerusalem whenever Jerusalem is sacked and and Jeremiah has been prophesying about that and they're taken into captivity like devastation is not even the right word I mean they have just slaughtered thousands of people Men, women, and children. And at that moment when you live there, you cannot comprehend how God could ever have a purpose in the slaughtering of men, women, and children. And so the natural response is to question everything. And now in our day, that's what the the intellectuals perhaps somewhat justifiably think about, right? How is, is a baby starving in the Sahara Desert a just, compassionate God. And yet what we see through all of this story is that all of these things are happening and what's incredible to me is they're happening at the beckoning of people's freedom. Like God is not predestining these things in every person's movement and choice. These things are just happening and how much of like somebody's personality, let's say that you're a a a non-risk-taking person. And so you've been raised in Babylon for the last 70 years and your family's established there and you know the language and you have your small business and you hear that there's a group of Jews going back to Jerusalem to reestablish temple worship, but your personality type is, I don't like to take risks. I think I'm going to stay. Like even in that... God can use that to establish your family there so that hundreds of years later, your 
your offspring will come at the day of Pentecost, hear the gospel, get saved, and go back and spread the gospel there hundreds of years later. And what so excites me about that is just the profound wisdom and power of God to accomplish things individually at the moment, to to accomplish things collectively at the moment, to accomplish things of collective judgment of nations. And God would sometimes say, this is what he'd do to the prophets. He'd say this. He'd say, I'm going to judge Jerusalem using this neighboring nation. And then when they have overextended my judgment, I'm going to judge the nation that judged them. Like, I can't, this gets way too deep for me, right? And how all of this is revolving around God wanting to turn the hearts of men like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 5, to him. So he's angling to convince the heart of the king to submit to the one true God. He's angling to try to convince the heart of the Jewish people to turn back to God. He's trying to spread the truth throughout Babylon and he knows it's going to be imperfect because we're all imperfect and we all fail, but he's setting that up for a time 600 years later where their ancestors are going to come back so that Peter can preach to them about Jesus. Like, man. And and what I've just talked is just this frail attempt at explaining the complexity of God's purpose and that's just looking at it retrospectively from Pentecost it's so to consider for a moment and this is one of the things that if I have a pet peeve about I'm pretty patient with people who question the Christian worldview but I have a pet peeve about people who Christian worldview people who question the Christian worldview it's when they make out the Bible to be some simple um, book for ignorant inherence just to find a sense of self-peace. And I'm like, man, you don't know the sword you're playing with. I like, there's so much here. And one thing I'm always... Um, encouraged by and intrigued by is the honest, non-believing intellectual who picks up the Bible and says, whoa. Like, I'm not an inherent, I'm not a believer yet, but whoa, there is a whole lot here to reckon with. And to me, this is one of those examples of what Pentecost is accomplishing. Now, if we look at that, that's retrospectively, okay? From Pentecost, what's leading up to it? And again, that's just such a small thing of it. Let's, let's look at the next one, uh, the, the next big picture thing here. It says, the implications of Pentecost can be understood retrospectively and prospectively. Retrospectively, God allowed the empires of Assyria, Babylon, and Persia to disperse the Jews to the east. He permitted Greek and Rome to take spread Jews to the west and southeast. When Pentecost came, these religious Jews, which had lived in various parts of the world for hundreds of years due to the diaspora, traveled back to Jerusalem. As their natural ancestors were taken from natural Israel as slaves, they would return and discover a spiritual Israel they could be grafted into. In one sense, God was redeeming the judgment He had levied upon these people hundreds of years earlier. Now, um, if I were a Jew at this time who traveled from a distant area and came to Jerusalem for Pentecost only to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ the Messiah and get saved, 
that once black hole in my family's history of being taken into slavery would now be the greatest means for my redemption. And I would celebrate it and bless it highest of anything. And that's one of the things that we see about the nature of God is his magnificence is so unparalleled that he can take the literal darkest things in a human history and a nation's history and a person's life and redeem it to the extent where it becomes the greatest blessings we've ever experienced. Um, That's the God that we serve. Prospectively, this miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this day permitted the gospel to spread throughout the Roman Empire at a rate unmatched in human history, or at least as far as I can tell. The Jewish people present at Pentecost consisted of a conglomeration of many Jewish subgroups spread throughout the Roman Empire. These people were culturally diverse but religiously similar. It is likely that those faithful enough to take a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem were devout practitioners of Judaism. If these people, the most devout Jews throughout the Roman Empire, left their local communities in order to observe a Jewish feast and returned to a, con- returned a convert to a new religion, it is no surprise that hundreds of churches were established instantly and without coordination. Now, um, you can turn to page five. One of the things that I hope someday to see, there's a sense to which um, the gospel spreads at such a slow rate today that, you know, a man comes and tells us, I have a burden to go and start a mission here. And so he goes and he starts the mission and and it takes this long period of time to get converts and get a building and get all these things going. And then finally he establishes a church. And, and all the while it's like there's a sense to which we can keep our finger on what's going on in different places. Can you imagine the gospel spreading at such a rapid rate that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches are starting in the matter of a year or two? Boom. And you had no idea. And so no, but there's not a mission board saying, well, or there's not a missions conference like we have here saying, well, now there's a new work in Belize. There's a new work, new work in uh, Iran. There's a new work in Pakistan. No, it's just, there's just this explosion. That's what occurs here. And um, it's just a neat thing to consider. Somebody have a comment about any of the things that we've said so far before we move to the next section. All right, we'll try to finish this one up uh, because this is going to really interpret the book of Joel because this is what Peter quotes from. So this is in verse 14, and we're now getting into Peter's sermon. So up to this point, it's all the lead up to the context and what they say in relation or, or up to it. And now here Peter is about to stand and preach. So verse 14, But Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and saith, said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this done unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So what time in the morning is it that he's preaching? Nine o'clock. So the first hour of the day, or zero hour, is six. Six a.m. So the third hour of the day is nine a.m. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So this is really important. And we're gonna, this is going to be a theme as we go through the book of Acts. Peter quotes the Bible when he is speaking to Jews. Because that is the ultimate authority. When he speaks to Gentiles, his quotation of Scripture is diminished significantly. 
or Paul's. He begins to speak truth, but if he was to say to a Gentile, the prophet Joel says, I don't care. And what does the witch at Endor say about it? <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't care. It's, it's, and so here, he's speaking to these Jews. This is what the prophet Joel says. I would encourage you, if you ever run into a Jew, you better know your Old Testament. That's how you're going to reach them. That's their language, if they're a true, genuine, orthodox Jew. That's what he says. Verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last days, said God, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Notice the word all there. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this is going to be a tip I'm going to give you for not just interpreting what's going on here, but any time you read the Bible, this is really important to do. When we're reading this, this is going to get, it's going to feel very strange because he's saying, okay, you're going to recognize the prophesying and dreaming dreams. You might say to yourself, okay, that's what's happening at that moment. That's what they're seeing at Pentecost is these people doing all these things. And then right after that, it says the sun is going to turn to blood and fire and all this, the moon. And, and then your mind probably goes to the end times, right? And so you're saying, okay, what is he talking about here? How is on one hand he's talking about this day that they're witnessing and all the, the manifestation of God's spirit in its profound nature, the supernatural way, and then he jumps right to the, like there's a whole couple thousand years up to this point that are in the middle, but it seems like they're in direct succession. Now, here's a, here's a, a tool I want to give you as you study the Bible. He is quoting from the book of Joel specifically. So the meaning of all of these things, we have to discern by what's happening in Joel. Okay? Because the earth, or the signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke, he is not talking about the end times in Joel. What he's talking about are locusts. A bug. Okay? So this is where... This is Scripture Interpretation 101, okay? He's talking about it, and we'll just go ahead and read it here in the first two bullet points. To understand Peter's reference to the prophecy in Joel, we must understand what's going on in the book of Joel. During Joel's time, which is an uncertain time frame, there's some speculation I have, but we're just going to leave it uncertain, God sent a terrible plague of locusts to cover Israel. These locusts were so bad that whatever one type of locust left behind... Another type ate. And what that type left behind, another type finished off. Joel said that Israel had been like the Garden of Eden. So it was so fertile and so prosperous. It was like the Garden of Eden. And then this locust came. And there were three types that ate all different things. And the nation was completely devoured. Okay? But after these locusts, it was like a desolate wilderness with nothing left behind. And those are both summarizes from Joel 1, 1, 4 and Joel 2, 3. This 
was a form of God's judgment for the sin of the people. And this time of judgment was known as, quote, the day of the Lord. So in natural terms, Joel the prophet is prophesying to these people. And if, if you're starving to death and your family is starving to death right after the fact that we've had hundreds and hundreds of years prosperity like we have in America, and now all of a sudden we're starving to death, we call it the pandemic. Two words, and it encompasses this significant event that we all know what it is. This was called the day of the Lord. When God judged them by completely wiping out all of their crop. In Joel 2, so let's keep reading, the prophet reveals that an army was coming which would decimate Israel. This army is a reference to the locust, whose destruction was not an accident, but God's judgment upon the sin of Israel. Again, this is a quote from, um, from Joel. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth this word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So the prophet Joel is warning them about his judgment. And now he's saying, in lieu of this judgment that is coming, here's what you need to do in preparation for this judgment. Okay? And I'll get how this links to what is going on at Pentecost here in just a second. Verse 12. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and and repenteth Him of evil. Who knoweth if He will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind Him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of her chamber and out of the bride out of her, excuse me, and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them, wherefore should they say among the people, who is their God? Joel commanded the people to collectively and publicly repent of their sin before the day of the Lord comes upon them, because the benevolent God may turn away from punishing them. So now let's try to get what this is saying in the context of Pentecost. These people had just crucified the Messiah. They had sinned greatly. And what we're going to find out is they were convinced that's what they had done. They knew they killed God's Messiah. So they're going to cry out here in a little bit. What do we do? How do we respond to killing God? And so he goes back and he grabs a pattern from the Old Testament. And he says, There was a day where a prophet came and predicted a day of judgment, just like is coming on you for killing the Messiah. And the locusts 
covered the whole ground and the sky was covered with locusts that the sun was darkened and you couldn't see. And so he's talking about God's judgment. But in that time, during the time of Joel. And so then he's using the words of Joel and how Joel told the people respond to that coming day of judgment and says, there's a day of judgment coming on you and you need to respond the way he told those people to respond. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Come together collectively and repent in dust and ashes and plead for God's forgiveness for your sin. So a couple things here. It's really important when we begin to discern, and this is what I would say about if we try to take some... Um, of this description and apply it to what the end of time will look like, we're making a mistake. There may be some similarities, but the point of this expression is not to describe what the end judgment will look like. All he's doing is saying, this was the warning that Joel was given about the day that was coming. You need to respond before the day of the Lord comes upon you. When they repented as God commanded, God promised to send them corn and wine, which had been decimated through the locusts, and to, quote, restore to you the years that the locusts had eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praiseth you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed." And after they repented of their sin and were restored to God's fellowship, God's Spirit would be poured upon them in abundance. So again, the prophet Joel. Judgment is coming for your sin. Here's what you need to do. And if you do it, God's presence will be among you in great might. And you'll be so much that all that you lost during those times of famine are restored And you're going to have so forgotten about what happened that your lips are going to sing with praise. The day of Pentecost, they crucify the Messiah, uh, the worst sin you could commit, right? The worst travesty you could do. And he gives them this direct repent. Turn back to God. Rend your heart and not your garment. And if you do... My abundance will overflow more than what it had prior. And that's the beautiful thing about what happens in Acts. That's what we see. Is that these people who crucified the Messiah are now the primary benefactors of the Spirit's outpouring. That they directly benefit more than anybody did. But they crucified Jesus. And again, I say that to say, that's God for you. (laughs) Like, that's what I love about it, is those most guilty who genuinely repent are often those most blessed from God's uh, 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 storehouse. And so what consolation, you know, you hear people say sometimes, you know, I've just sinned too much and I've done too much. A precedent in Scripture are those are the very people that end up being more bountiful and spiritual blessings than anybody. Because God uses them as a display of His greatness. 
that yes, you can blaspheme me horribly, but I still, my long suffering, my long suffering and forgiveness is greater than you can comprehend. And let me just pick out some evil man, bless him to show the whole world how great that I am. And that's what God does. Um, last thing, and I'll give you a chance to speak here. Peter stands up on Pentecost. He is declaring the fulfillment of this prophecy made in Joel the very day before the ultimate day of the Lord's judgment. People would be commanded to repent of their sin of rejecting Jesus, the very Son of God. If they repented of sin, God would pour out His Spirit. And we'll talk about next week the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, all types, Gentiles. People would prophesy, dream, and see visions of the Lord. Now, this is my opinion. I don't feel comfortable with this necessarily fully, but this doesn't seem to be an allusion to a supernatural gift as much as a reference to the people being filled with God. They would see visions of God in the daytime, speak of Him, and dream of Him as they slept. God's Spirit would be present in abundance. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be filled with His Spirit. So, to conclude this section, and again, I I don't feel super sure about this. I don't think this whole your young man shall dream dreams and your old man shall prophesy or, or get those backwards and your young men shall see visions. I don't think that's talking about a literal gift necessarily. All of those things in the Old Testament were evidence of God's spirit being with somebody. And so he's just saying on the day when I pour out my spirit, God's spirit is going to be with you in abundance. He's going to be present. Um, Said a lot, went a little over. Somebody have a comment or a thought or a question or anything about what we've said here?